Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation and recognises their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Some will know Friends of the Earth or Faux as a really cool restaurant and food co-op, but many will also be aware of Friends of the Earth as a vital federation of activist organisations working towards a future of sustainable living and environmental justice. Joining us in the studio today is Shalini Rotella, a volunteer from Faux, come to talk to us about the Sustainable Cities campaign and hashtag Walk This Way. Shalini, welcome to the studio. Well, thank you so much for having me. Ah, thanks for coming <laughs> in. Um, so first of all, um, can you tell us a bit about the Sustainable Cities campaign? What's it about? Um, so the campaign pretty much just wants to ensure that Melbourne will remain accessible for everyone moving into the future. Um, its main priorities focus on an investment in public transport, um, encouraging people to use active transport, so rather than cars, and also to lobby against major road developments and toll roads. Um, I guess the focus on public transport is important considering that it's the second biggest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions in Victoria. So I guess in the future, as we start moving away, moving into clean energy, um, that was, is become, going to become a less um, of a big factor and then transport will probably, um, I guess, take the lead. So I think it's important to start thinking about transport early, um, yeah, to try and combat it. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah... It, it, a lot of people will be familiar that The Economist ranked Melbourne number one most livable city yeah. in the world. I used, if you can't see at home, because I used my hands and I've used scare <laughs> quotes around yeah. livable, um, for the seventh year running. Um, but Friends of the Earth thinks that this livability will be challenged by the city's ability to grow sustainably yeah. in the shadow of climate change. Um, what are some important things that Melbourne needs to do to grow sustainably? Right, yeah. First of all, it's really interesting. Um, there's been a lot of backlash about that, The Economist saying yeah. that yeah. it's Melbourne's more like livable, but livable for who really? I guess like that index is created for business executives. So like it's generally for, it's sold to um, corporations so they can determine the pay structure when executives move abroad. So Mm. in terms of like that index, like is it really taking into account like the majority of the population or is it really for like a minority of people that would perhaps move to these different kind of cities? Mm. Um, I think... In terms of the ways that Melbourne could move forward, I guess it is those three kind of aspects I was talking about that the Sustainable Cities campaign um, is going to be focusing on. Um, Transport is a massive thing because Melbourne is increasing at such a drastic rate. I think, don't don't quote me off the top of my head, maybe 2,000 people a week. Yeah, wow. Um, So it's really... People, as the inner city becomes more gentrified, people are going to be pushed further and further out. And I think increasing the transport and enabling all people to have access to the benefits that the inner city has to offer um, is, at the end of the day, the most important thing. Absolutely. Um, So are there 
examples of sustainable growth, especially in public transport elsewhere in Australia or around the world that um, Friends of the Earth thinks that we should follow? Um, well, it was th- when I was thinking about this, I, um, I was reading an article from the ABC and they were quoting um, Vancouver's ex-planning officer called Brent Todorian, and he was um, talking about the Colombian city Medellin and saying that it was an incredible example of how a city was moved from essentially a state of guerrilla warfare and in 20 years they have been heralded as one of, uh, I guess, the most innovative um, cities to increase their infrastructure in terms of public transport. Now, I don't I don't th- think that we can compare Melbourne to a state of guerrilla warfare that Medellin was experiencing under no, Pablo Escobar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But at the same time, I think it's an awesome example of how much change can occur from such a, like, a poor state and I guess the affluence of Melbourne. Um, why not? Like, why not? Why, why can't we make big changes to actually yeah, make some stuff happen? I think it would also be um, cool to look at the transport um, sectors of Vienna, Vancouver and Toronto, which are also ranked really highly on The Economist's um, accessibility ratings on that index. Um, and yeah, I think also some Scandinavian countries as well also has some really interesting um, active transport planning. For example, like in Copenhagen, they have um, instead of the um, bike path directly onto the road, they have a footpath and the bike path and parked cars protecting bikes from oncoming traffic. So small, I guess, um, planning like that, I guess, would, yeah increase people's ability to use public transport, I mean, active transport, sorry, mm. and make it a lot safer. Yeah, that's um, that's an interesting thought. Yeah. Um, but uh, as it stands in Melbourne right now, a lot of workers in Melbourne rely heavily on personal cars, maybe because of the, the way that public transport is set up or yeah. the distances that they have to travel, and they require cars to get to and from employment. Uh, what are the social implications of a shift away from road infrastructure in terms of health, accessibility and, um, and lifestyle? Yeah, okay, so... I think like facilitating car travel or um, encouraging people to use cars is a really like temporary solution to the to the problem. And I guess as um, car travel becomes more expensive, cars, petrol, um, we're trying to move away from fossil fuels. It just doesn't really seem like a, a sustainable kind of way for people to be using transport into the future. I think like car sharing will be a massive thing in the future. Actually, like. Um, it's going to be a long process in terms of in making the entirety of Melbourne accessible for everyone. Like, there's no doubt about it. It's not going to be an instantaneous thing. Um, so I think that would be a big, um, a big, uh, I guess, improvement. Um, in terms of health, I don't know, encouraging people to use active transport, I think undoubtedly will have a positive infect, um, impact Sorry, on their mental and physical health. Um in terms of accessibility, yeah, as I said, a lot of areas, especially Melbourne's west, uh, don't have um, appropriate public transport. But as I said, yeah, over time, if that's an area that we're focusing on, hopefully it will get to a point where suburban travellers will be able to use that as their main source of um, transport. Um, and in terms of lifestyle, I think public transport is an awesome way to unite the community. I reckon if you're um, traveling in your car generally by yourself, you're not really interacting with your community as well. And I think maybe those small interactions you have at the tram stop or on the train um, is a nice way to kind of unite people. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, earlier you you raised the um, the point of active transport being an important way um, to restructure the the way people 
sort of interact with the city and the way that they get around the city. Yeah. Um, active transport like um, cycling and also like walking. Yeah. Um, so why we're, we're t- going to talk about um, walk this way now. So um, if people like what they've he- been hearing, they could be do walk- worse to take part in walk this way. But what is walk this way? So walk this way is a ca- is a sponsored walk um, being organised by Friends of the Earth. Um, with the endeavour to raise funds for an awareness for the sustainable cities and climate campaigns that Friends of the Earth are running and also to raise money for the organisation itself. Um, it's, I guess, a more tangible way for people to get involved in these two campaigns and to really, I guess, um, contribute to FOE and also r- help raise awareness in the community. Um, it's going to take place on Saturday, October the 7th, um, and it's going to start in Southbank and end at Friends of the Earth on Smith Street. It'll, take, it'll be around 15 kilometres of walking. Um, along the way, we'll also have different, um, I guess, information points and meeting points for some reason if people can't actually um, walk the whole distance. Um, and, yeah, I think in terms of showing your support, you can log on to our website, which is walkthisway.org.au and sign up. Um, create a profile and get sponsored. In terms of um, the sponsorship, that's what the funds would be generating to support um, the two campaigns that Friends of the Earth are running. And why a walk? Uh, you're hoping the participants get their family and friends to sponsor the walk, but what are you hoping people get from the walk itself? Yeah, <laughs> Well, first of all, obviously a walk in terms of we're encouraging people to use sustainable modes of transport. I think it would be a bit um, ironic if we were doing a, a um, organised drag race or <laughs> organised, I don't know, yeah, something no, no, using yeah. technology. But, um, yeah, so walk, I guess, encouraging people to use active transport. And also in terms of the way we've designed the walk, we've um, started in the inner city and we will move through Melbourne's west So, and then we'll move back um, into... Um, the east into Friends of the Earth. Um, but the walk is, also, is designed to kind of highlight the inequities in um, and accessibility of transport and walking paths in the different areas of Melbourne. So along the walk, if you participate in the whole thing, you'll really be able to notice how dif- different it is compared to when you're walking, say, the Capital City Trail through Fitzroy and Edinburgh Gardens and how lush and amazing it is in comparison to when you're walking under freeway bridges in Footscray. And... It's just, yeah, and it's just really apparent how people are living in those areas aren't able to access Melbourne in the same um, enjoyable way as other parts, just purely because of their socioeconomic status and, yeah. Absolutely. Well, um, if people are interested in that, they can definitely find all the links on our website and or we'll be uh, directing people to the Friends of the Earth website as well. Um, Shalini, thank you so much for coming on to the show. You're so welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no worries. Shalini is a Friends of the Earth campaigner for the hashtag Walk This Way project at Friends of the Earth. You'll find all of the links on their website and you can look up hashtag Walk This Way on Twitter and social media as well. Australia is a crime scene. It's unfinished business, this crime. People don't understand that it was a military exercise. It was military in the first fleet. It was Captain James Cook. It was Captain Arthur Phillip. Right through the history of Australia, it's a military exercise. Our people have suffered greatly because the white man is not prepared to act honourably and legally. It's still the case in this country today. This is 3CR.
we're excited to be on the phone with Rodney Croom. Rodney Croom is an LGBT activist and academic, former National Director of the Australian Marriage Equality and 2015 Tasmanian of the Year. He's on the phone with us right now to talk about the upcoming postal plebiscite on marriage equality. Rodney Croom, welcome to Monday Breakfast. Uh, hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. Oh, thank you for coming on. Um, so we, we may as well get straight into it. The ideal would have been to have a free vote in Parliament that if ministers decided to represent the majority of Australians would result fairly swiftly in the reg- legislation for marriage equality. Instead, what, we, what are we facing now? Yes, well, you're right. Uh, the right way to do this is just for the political parties to have a free vote so members can vote according to their conscience and have a, um, a debate and vote in Parliament and we know if that happened, it would go straight through because the majority of MPs support it. Precisely because that is the case, um, the right wing of the Liberal Party has been pushing for quite a while now to have a public vote on this issue instead of a parliamentary vote. Um, and the latest incarnation of that, after a fully-fledged plebiscite was defeated last year in the Senate, is now a, a postal vote. So what they're proposing is that... Uh, all voters will receive a letter in the mail from the uh, Australian Bureau of Statistics asking them if they support marriage equality or not. Uh, and also, I understand, seeking some demographic details like um, age, sex, electorate, stuff like that. And we all need to send those uh, those envelopes back and then they'll count them up and decide um, who, uh, how many people support marriage equality. Now... The huge problems with this particular method are, A, it's voluntary, so it won't represent the population as a whole. It will only represent those people who are motivated enough to send their letters back. And, of course, like the plebiscite that was proposed last year, it's also um, not binding on politicians, so they can ignore the result. It will cost $122 million, uh, which is a complete waste of money when we already know from a decade of opinion polls that the majority of Australians support this reform. Um, and, worst of all, uh, it will be a platform for a whole lot of hate and denigration against LGBTI people and our families. Mm. So there's a lot of downsides to this particular uh, proposal. That's why um, I've been involved with other groups. Uh, I've been supporting uh, groups like Parents and Friends of Lesbians and Gays and Rainbow Families and others to take challenges uh, to the High Court against this particular proposal. Um it's why uh, it'll be hard to win it if it goes ahead. But if it does go ahead, uh, I'm right behind trying to do our best to make sure that we do win it. So just to rewind a little bit, plebiscite is a new word for quite a few people. We've been banding it about a lot and not really talking about what it is. So a plebiscite itself, so that's it's a national vote that tests whether the majority of Australians support an action on a certain issue. So usually it's kind of testing the water. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So. Yeah. Um, there are two types of public votes in Australia. The first is a, um, a referendum, uh, and most people will be familiar with a referendum. That's about changing the constitution, and we've had a series of those over the years um, about various issues. Uh, a plebiscite, as you say, is different insofar as it's not binding on politicians. It doesn't change anything directly. It's just like a really big, expensive opinion poll. Uh, and the last time we had a plebiscite in Australia was in 1977 um, at, at a national level about changing the national anthem. Um, and uh, the majority of Australians said they want to be singing Advance Australia Fair rather than God Save the Queen. Um, and the, an indication of how weak a 
the plebiscite is is that it took us seven years to make for politicians to make that change <laughs> after that particular plebiscite. So yeah, that's what a plebiscite is. But we've gone down even a step from that now. A plebiscite, like a referendum, is a compulsory vote, like an election. Everyone has to go out to a polling booth and vote. Now, of course, that's not the case. With a postal vote, people um, have the option of returning their letter or not, um, and it's not uh, nearly as rigorous or as representative as either a plebiscite or a referendum. So because this um, postal plebiscite is going to be run by the Australian Bureau of Statistics rather than the government, I understand that um, Commonwealth electoral the Commonwealth Electoral Act isn't going to apply, which means that um, both lobby groups on both sides of the debate are free to distribute misleading and deceptive material. You mentioned that earlier. Yes, um, the government is on very shaky ground if it was to conduct this vote through the Australian Electoral Commission, which is which is the body set up to do elections. Uh, and so in order to avoid that, the, the constitutional problems with that, um, it's decided to go through the Bureau of Statistics, uh, which is odd, but uh, it believes it's on stronger ground doing that. Uh, and that means, as you say, that none of the usual safeguards that apply to elections will apply. Um, and there's been a heap of confusion over the last week or so about who will be able to vote, how they'll vote, what the safeguards will be. For instance... Uh, there's been uh, an issue about whether 16 or 17 year olds can vote, um, which, from my point of view, would be great. But uh, the government has been unclear about that. It's been unclear about whether so-called silent voters can vote. These are people who don't have their addresses on the electoral roll uh, for safety and security reasons. Um, but because their address isn't there, the Bureau of Statistics won't know how to contact them. Um, there's been an issue uh, about whether Australians living overseas can vote. Usually they go to their local consulate to do that, but in this case they won't because the letter will have to go to their home, but the government doesn't have their home addresses. Uh, there have been issues about whether ballots can be bought and sold on a, on a kind of black market, a democracy black market. <laughs> um, the, the issues just go on and on. And the government so far hasn't really responded in a way that makes me at all confident that that the process has any rigour. And, of course, in the end, there's not even a, a dispute resolution mechanism as there is with an election. So I fear that whichever side wins, the losing side will say, well, there were all these problems and it was a bit of a fiasco, so the result doesn't mean anything. And the debate will continue to go on. Mm, absolutely. Um, Running cream. Yeah, that's sort of um, also one thing that I might want to get into um, and sort of emphasise is uh, Hurstbridge um, in New South Wales. There were pamphlets warning about the death of family bloodlines and sunlessness caused by a yes vote on marriage equality. So we're expecting a lot of very harsh invective. And we can imagine um, from, from, the, from the no voters, I mean to say. And so you can um, sort of imagine that a lot of this very negative, homophobic, um, transphobic, you know, all sorts of different kind of bigoted opinions will be given a lot of airtime. Um, can you foresee an impact on mental health in the LGBTQ plus community? Yes, absolutely. Firstly, I, I want to clarify, I actually agree with the Prime Minister when he says that the overwhelming majority of Australians uh, will conduct themselves in, in a mature and rational way and have... Um, a sound and safe debate about this. The problem is the tiny minority of Australians with hate in their heart 
who will use this as the biggest stage they've ever had to strut their hate. <coughs> Excuse me. And yes, that will have a negative impact. Uh, and we know that from similar votes overseas. There have been extensive studies in the United States uh, where there were quite a few um, state-based ballots on marriage equality before the Supreme Court ruled uh, for marriage equality across the country. Uh, and um, social scientists and health professionals me measured the mental health of LGBTI people before, during and after those ballots. And invariably, rates of depression and anxiety amongst LGBTI people and their family members increased. Sometimes, uh, I found this hard to believe, but this is what the statistics say, sometimes up to 200 or 250% um, before, from before to after those particular ballots. And it was the same in Ireland, unfortunately. There was a study done about the referendum they had on this in 2015, which found that overwhelmingly LGBTI people uh, suffered um, anxiety and depression uh, and other mental health issues during that debate, which was, frankly, a lot calmer than what we, and probably a lot less hateful than what we can expect to see in Australia in the coming weeks. And some would say that they suffered unnecessarily. Rodney, we want to keep talking to you, but we're going to take a little break now to listen to some community service announcements. We'll be right back. Thanks. Tune in, dig deep and clean up by purchasing some fantastic discounted gardening books from 3CR's online garden store. We have books on water-wise gardening, organic vegetables, roses, climbers and creepers and even clematis. It's easy. Just go to our website, 3cr.org.au and follow the links on the front page. Don't have internet access? Call the station during business hours between 9 and 5 and we'll post out a catalogue in the mail. All proceeds help keep Melbourne's favourite gardening show on air for another year. Tune in 7.30am every Sunday morning. Panoply, panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855 AM digital and 3cr.org.au. And you're listening to Monday Breakfast. The time right now is 8.21. We're back on the line again with Rodney Croom, and we've been talking about the uh, same-sex marriage plebiscite. Uh, thank you again for coming on the show, Rodney. Um, we'll get straight back into our, uh, our questions for you. I, I wanted to talk a bit about how, all of this being said, we've been talking about all of the negative uh, consequences and the ne negative things that we can foresee accompanying the plebiscite, um, but there's no promise that the plebiscite will go ahead as it's facing a couple of challenges in the High Court, including one that, uh, that you're bringing. Can you tell us about that? What can you tell us? Um, yes, you're right. The, there's, there's two challenges before the High Court right now. One from um, parents and friends of lesbians and gays and uh, Felicity Marlowe, who's a, a rainbow mum from Melbourne, and Andrew Wilkie. The other one's from Australian Marriage Equality and Janet Rice, um, uh, 
who's a Green Senator from, from Victoria. The challenges are basically... The, the basic claim that's being made in these challenges is that this is a kind of government overreach, that Parliament uh, needs to be involved uh, and to assent to an, to an exercise like this. It needs to um, allocate the money for it and it needs to pass legislation to, to create a, a legitimate basis for it. Um, that's, the, that's the main thrust of the argument. Uh, and in fact... That argument will draw on a case that some of your listeners might remember from a couple of years ago involving school chaplains where uh, the High Court found that the government had overreached in that situation by not passing legislation uh, and having a proper mandate to be able to fund school chaplains. And so instead, the, the money for those chaplains now has to go through the states. So that's the basic argument, executive overreach, if you like. Um, and, of course, the reason that the government hasn't got a specific mon monetary appropriation from Parliament or legislation is because the Senate doesn't support this. That's why it's gone around Parliament and gone to the, to the Bureau of Statistics and sort of cobbled together a bunch of executive powers to do this. The case says, no, that, those executive powers don't hold up. You need to go, have Parliament's assent for this. That's the basic argument. Um, and the court will consider those arguments on the 5th and 6th of, of September uh, in Melbourne. Um, and I understand probably deliver its finding quite soon after that. Uh, you should never try and predict the outcomes of high court cases. <laughs> and I certainly wouldn't, no. wouldn't do that. Um, but obviously I'm hopeful that the court will say this is, uh, like I said, executive overreach. Uh, you can't go ahead with this unless you have parliamentary's, Parliament's approval. Um, and then, hopefully, if that does happen, we can return this issue to where it needs to be debated, and that is in Parliament now. Absolutely. I just want to clarify um, something I said earlier, that it would be um, a, a High Court challenge that you're supporting, not that you yourself personally are bringing. I just wanted to clear that up. And also, um, Will, I mean, you're talking about executive overreach and sort of government overreach. Why why this issue on um, sort of marriage equality as opposed to war or changes to 18C, the uh, Anti-Discrimination Act, or other conservative cause celebre? Why... Why do you think it's um, marriage equality that's got sort of the, the conservatives' backs up? That's a very good question. Uh, why are we spending $122 million to determine the public, public opinion on this issue, but not on a range of others? Um, like you said, about whether we go to war or um, uh, any number of issues that you would think would affect... Australians more broadly uh, than, than marriage equality, which will in the end only affect uh, same-sex couples who want to be treated equally or want to get married. Um, and I think the answer to that is that um, this has really only ever been about delaying the issue. It's not about trying to resolve it. Uh, the only people who have ever really supported uh, the idea of a plebiscite or a postal vote vigorously have been those on the right of the Liberal Party who have just seen it as a way to slow down the whole debate and to try and um, divert the debate away from Parliament where we know that if it was dealt with tomorrow, it it did pass. So that's what it's really about. It's about delay and frustration of the issue. Uh, why would they put so much effort into that, particularly when... They keep saying that it's only a tenth order issue and people don't really care about it. <laughs> mm. 
why are they putting so much effort into trying to find the public's opin- opinion on this? Because I think in the end, they believe that they can scare enough people uh, with all their predictions of the sky falling in if we have marriage equality that they might actually win a public vote. I think they genuinely believe that. They think that Australians are, are foolish enough that we would fall for their fear-mongering. I don't believe Australians are foolish. I don't think that we will fall for that um, fear-mongering. Uh, I think um, if we keep on, put, keep on putting out a positive message as advocates for reform about the importance of this, about the, import, the importance of treating everyone equally and the importance of love and commitment in our lives, um, then Australians will respond positively to that and we can win this vote. Absolutely. Um, so I, I guess we're looking ahead now. Um, if the plebiscite has to go ahead, uh, you did sort of um, mention this slightly earlier, but what is the best strategy for people in favour of marriage equality? Is that an, a boycott, a strong yes vote? What should we do? Um. I think it's important always to come back to the LGBTI community to seek its views on on key questions like this. What? How should we respond to this to this postal vote? And um, the groups that I'm involved in, again, PFLAG and uh, Rambo Families and Just Equal, we did a survey of the LGBTI community uh, about four or five weeks ago now. Um, and what we found was that overwhelmingly, LGBTI people wanted to... They opposed the postal vote, but if it was going ahead, they wanted to win it. Um, only about 15% said that they would prefer to have boycott. Of course, people are free to boycott uh, the, the vote if they wish, but um, I base my view on what the majority want, and the majority wanted to uh, win this. So I'll be working with others over the next few weeks, assuming it does go ahead, to make sure we do do that. Um, in, uh, as you said up front, I, I, I'm a Tasmanian, I live in Tasmania and over the last couple of weeks I've been travelling around the state, uh, organising people, um, urging them to get involved, uh, they don't need much urging, they're very keen to, to help, and uh, organising a grassroots campaign in Tasmania to win the vote if it goes ahead. Rodney, we are going to put some information up on our website for how people can get their um, electoral details updated to make sure that they can vote. Um, We're going to wrap up there, but thank you so much for coming in to speak to us. Rodney Croom is an LGBT activist and academic. He was the former National Director of Australian Marriage Equality and also the 2015 Tasmania of the Year. Thanks, Rodney. Thanks, guys. Fantastic. Uh, So... It's 22 days at least until the postal vote uh, sheets end up in your letterbox. So that means 22 days of campaigning. What could be some pretty harsh rhetoric? If anything over this period causes you any distress, you need to talk to someone. Please call Lifeline on 13 11 14. If you're a person who ent- identifies as LGBTQ plus and would like, prefer to speak to someone from the community, call Q Life on 1800 184 527. That's 1800 184 527 from 3 p.m. to midnight, seven days a week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.